All right, so this morning and Wednesday, we're looking at the issue of homosexuality, which is a complex issue. Um, interestingly, it's an issue that kind of pulls together lots of other things we've been talking to. I don't know if you noticed, but the reading both um, from Grabowski and uh, Melina, when they were giving a theological anthropology, it was like they were summarizing the entire course we've done so far. I kind of wish I'd used that text earlier on in the course. Because um, what we're looking at in homosexuality is in a sense, you might say an exception to the norm. So kind of knowing the norm is pretty pivotal if we're gonna make sense of what's going on in this context. So I've got these notes here for both today and Wednesday. Um, I've consciously put a little less text there than I have some weeks so that we've got more time to kind of interrupt and make comments and questions. But um, I'm hoping that this morning we'll do five or six of those pages, which would mean on Wednesday we can look at the question of legal recognition for same-sex unions and then have some open-ended discussion um, with a list of some pastoral scenarios there. Um, so that's kind of what we're doing the next, next two sessions. And this morning I've got a fair few quotes from other sources, um, including, you know, including some church documents. So let's start with a definition um, taken there from the catechism. What is homosexuality? What are we looking at these next two days? Homosexuality refers to relations between men or between women who experience an exclusive or predominant sexual attraction towards persons of the same sex. Now, as Melina indicates, St. Thomas does touch on this, but I think it's fair to say in the tradition there hasn't been much reflection on this as an attraction, as an orientation. So it's been treated of as an action you shouldn't be doing, um, but the thought of there being a condition, an attraction, hasn't had anywhere near as much reflection in the tradition therefore not as much reflection in church documents, um, even though that is the predominant way people have been talking about it for you know, most of the 20th century, or at least a lot of the 20th century. Um, so to repeat the point I'm, I'm making, the tradition has had a very clear analysis of these are certain sexual acts that are not to be done, but not much reflection on why people might want to do them. Um, okay, some terminology there I've put on the first page. Um, and I think it's useful for us to start by thinking what words we're gonna use. So I note first there are various words, labels, um, that are used that define a person by this condition, as if this was the most important thing about them. So if you call someone or someone calls themselves gay, homosexual, queer, 
what you're saying is the most important thing about them is that. Not the most important thing about them is that they're a person, or the most important thing about them is that this is someone in the image and likeness of God. But know that the most important thing about them is this orientation question. So footnoted, there's a book, there's also a good article um, that's on your, on Popoli, a bit, you know, for the links for this thing. But the book's called Why I Don't Call Myself Gay. Um, and so it's basically the reflections of someone saying that, you know, this isn't what defines me. Now, I note that, sadly, we must acknowledge that for many persons, their experience of life is such that this condition does seem to define their whole life experience. So I'm not sure you've had the experience. I've certainly, as a priest, had the experience multiple times when, within the first few minutes of a conversation, meeting someone new, they're telling me uh, this. Which it seems to me is kind of sad because it indicates actually so much of their life history has been dominated by this question um, that it's kind of the first thing they feel they need to tell you about themselves. Not, hey, I'm an American, not, hey, I'm a history major. Um, so there are labels that define a person by the condition. And you know, kind of the problem with that is that you limit them by that label. And a bigger risk is that they limit themselves by that label. So what's a better terminology? Well, in 1986, uh, the CDF sent a letter to bishops um, called the, it's there in the footnote to the letter to the bishop on the pastoral care of homosexual persons. So they threw out and quite explicitly say why, used the phrase a homosexual person. Jacob, could you read that block quote for us? The human person made in the image and likeness of God can hardly be adequately described by a reductionist reference to his or her sexual orientation. Everyone living on the face of the earth has personal problems and difficulties, but challenges to growth, strengths, talents, and gifts as well. Today, the church provides a badly needed context for the care of the human person when she refuses to consider the person as a heterosexual or a homosexual and insists that every person has a fundamental identity, the creature of God, and by grace, his child and heir to eternal life. So their preference, um, so throughout the document, I know it never refers to homosexuals, it always refers to homosexual persons. Um, now I've said what I think is the best term in use in Catholic circles, that I'm not sure when I first saw this, but it's it's become an increasing, a term used with increasing frequency, a person with same-sex attraction. So kind of the homosexual labels got hijacked by you know, certain lobbies. Same-sex attraction, um, so in that description, a person with same-sex attraction, what have I said there? Primarily, the person is a person. Um, so the same-sex attraction is just in addition to that, significant, but primarily this is a person. I've noticed there's a, a less positive phrasing of it that you do read also, a person suffering with same-sex attraction. Um, so though that, that phrasing might indicate that we are pastorally helping someone with a problem. 
Then I note, this said Catholic terminology hasn't been entirely consistent. That some people, some bishops, um, some documents, will refer to homosexuals, some refer to same-sex attraction, others refer to persons with a homosexual inclination. So we're not going to find in our church documents consistency on this. Um, I think Pope Francis you know, in a lot of those airplane interviews will quite, I, I suspect unconsciously, just repeat back the terminology that's presented to him in the various questions. Mm. Um, whereas I think Pope Benedict, you know, would always have been very precise. Um, and somehow these things probably didn't get mentioned as much, you know, under John Paul II. Um, So there hasn't been great consistency, but labels do matter. Uh, they're kind of indicating what we're talking about. Hey, yeah. I think another added benefit of a person with same-sex attraction is that it's defining, it's not defining any acts that they do. It's looking only at that disordered orientation, which I think is sort of beneficial, because then it's not implying that those acts are ne like a necessary consequence either. It's like it's not making a moral judgment right away. It's not forcing one to think that the immoral acts must follow from this attraction either. Right. In thinking how to present this whole topic, so I have focused on the orientation, the condition. Um, there'd be another way of presenting it that would focus almost entirely on the acts. Mm -hmm. um, kind of almost taking that point in reverse. That, um, And though certainly Grabowski indicates, or makes relatively brief reference to the fact, certainly lots of men who will only engage in same-sex activity in very specific circumstances. So like in prison, or alone, you know, with other men on ships, that when sex with a woman isn't possible, then the only sex possible, well, then that's what I'm going to go for. Um, which then would suggest it might not be about orientation at all, just about a drive for sexual release. Um, so that it does get complicated. Orientation's one question. Um, the acts themselves are kind of almost a separate question. Any other open comments? Would it be fair to say we all know people, gays, yeah, um, so that these aren't just academic questions um, and so how we relate to people how we seek to help people how we know that often in our culture they don't think they need help of any kind um, these are part of our big problems um, okay so those are some opening questions or terminologies about what we're looking at today so let's look over the page 
And so I've got two pages here in which I'm kind of summarising the issue that Molina's article was looking at with some block quotes from him. Um, so I asked the question, top of page two, why is homosexuality a problem? And I say, it's an orientation to use the sexual faculty for something other than its true purpose. So, you know, sexuality has a true purpose. If you have an inclination, a tendency to use it in some other way, well, that's a problem. So quoting the Catechism, homosexual acts are intrinsically disordered. They are contrary to the natural law. They close the sexual act to the gift of life. They do not proceed from a genuine affective and sexual complementarity. Under no circumstances can they be approved. So you know, there's no way a same-sex act can give the gift of life. That that's, and yet we've been reflecting on lots of different angles. This is inherent to the whole nature of sexuality. Um, complementarity is also indicated there, but that's almost, almost, you could say, a different set of issues. Um, okay, my next little setting, uh, subheading there objective disorder and intrinsically disordered. I see repeated church documents refer to homosexual acts as intrinsically disordered and the homosexual inclination as an objective disorder. And I've got there in that footnote three a list of um, kind of major documents that use that terminology. And I note that many commentators find these terms objectionable. So, you know, we need to, at the very least, be very clear as pastors. If you're using those terms, in what context are you using them? Who are you speaking to using them? Um, lots of people find these words very offensive. So why does the church use these words? Um, well, got a quote there from Molina's article. Uh, Daniel, would you mind reading that for us? Sure. If we fail to make this last point about homosexuality being objectively disordered, compassion and respect can become ambiguous. An acceptance that makes no judgment about homosexual orientation and that supposes it to be natural or at least unchangeable, if not actually part of personal identity, can slide into toleration of the acts that follow from the orientation. At the same time, there would be no good reason for calling homosexuals to chastity. To do so would be tantamount to imposing an extrinsic limit on an orientation that is deemed to be natural, innate, and constitutive of personal identity, and that has no legitimate outlets. It thus seems that whoever denies that homosexual inclination is an objective disorder faces the following dilemma, toleration and approval of homosexual activity or despair. I thought that was a pretty good summary of it. That, and that last phrase in particular, that you're either going to tolerate and accept it or you're going to pastorally despair um, unless you acknowledge this, this background concept that actually there is an objective problem here. There's an, an objective disorder here. 
Melina also made what I thought was a, a good point on this that I, is my next little subheading there, that sexuality isn't neutral between heterosexual and homosexual. So that's what a lot of terminology out there implies, that, well, sexuality is a broad thing. There's heterosexuals, there's homosexuals. That, well, no, our, our Christian understanding, as we've been trying to articulate through this course, is that actually sexuality, as I say, is a reality with a built-in purpose and function based on gender differentiation and gender complementarity and ordered towards procreation in male, female, genital, and personal union. And that homosexual activity doesn't match up with either of those two. And so a sexuality that is homosexual isn't going to harmonize with either of those either in terms of what is sexuality about? In the plan of God, it has a purpose. Now, on page three, I've tried to put together what might, in a sense, be the most offensive terminology, which is the word unnatural. So, Am I right in thinking you're all familiar in the tradition? We, there are certain acts that are referred to as unnatural. That's, that's an unnatural sin. That's an unnatural vice. Um, now, that's a pretty, you might say, aggressive label to be slapping on something. Um, so what do we mean by this? Um, so, top of the page, natural versus unnatural. So obviously for ourselves as Catholics, we're thinking about natural law, human nature, that we have a nature, that we have a, a built-in set of purposes and functions, um, but there are things that are natural to us. With the flip side of there are some things that are unnatural to us. So see, the, the human person has various natural inclinations the ends that fulfill our nature. An individual person, however, can be inclined to what is contrary to his true nature. Uh, James, would you mind reading those two bullet po point quotes? So these are both from Alina's article. What is not normal? What is not normal? For the common condition can appear to be natural. To the individual, it calls for the disordered disposition of his being. St. Thomas points this out in relation to unnatural pleasure. What is contrary to the nature of the species becomes natural to this individual by accidents. Catholic doctrine defines homosexual acts as intrinsically disordered inasmuch as they activate the sexual dynamism of persons without first that unitive means of total subject to the other, which can be realized only in the matrimonial union of man and woman, and secondly, openness to a procreative meaning whereby human sexuality is further ordered to the good of the child. I don't know about you, I don't know whether, you know, I know when you're reading a text you can sometimes blank out as you're reading through things, but this, this quote from St. Thomas I thought was very significant, um, so that, mm -hmm. 
St. Thomas has already got this in his terminology and his understanding, that yes, something is natural for the species, it is in that sense natural, but an individual can have an inclination to something that isn't to that end. Um, so as I said, I don't think this has been reflected on frequently in the tradition, but it is in the tradition. Okay, quoting then another section from the Catechism, um, and this, um, I'm going to pause in a minute for us to discuss this, but there's kind of a, a group of things here that all kind of fit together, but distinguishing acts from inclinations, um, so that just because you're inclined to something, that is a distinct thing different from, as we've kind of already indicated, from the acts themselves that you're inclined towards. Uh, Brian, would you mind reading this quote? Oh, so actually, this isn't the catechism, this is the instruction concerning criteria for discernments of vocations from the Congregation for Catholic Education. The catechism distinguishes between homosexual acts and homosexual tendencies. Regarding acts, it teaches that sacred scripture presents them as grave sins. The tradition has constantly considered them as intrinsically immoral and contrary to the natural law. Consequently, under no circumstances can they be approved. Deep-seated homosexual tendencies, which are found in a number of men and women, are also objectively disordered and for those same people often constitute a trial. Such persons must be accepted with respect and sensitivity. Every sign of unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided. They are called to fulfill God's will in their lives and to unite to the sacrifice of the Lord's cross the difficulties they may encounter. I'll come back to this later, but so with respect to discerning priestly vocations, there's this phrase, deep-seated, so not every uh, present inclination disordered um, is a reason to bar someone to ordination, but in some people these things are more deep-seated, more problematic, less under control. So the commentary from the cardinal who issued that afterwards um, indicated that the deep-seated is an indication of things that link with behavior. So someone whose behavior manifests an instability in this regard, um, that's kind of what's meant by deep-seated. Okay, so I think back to, in terms of reflecting on this, trying to do so Thomistically, using Molina's article again. Um, so what does it mean to talk about things being good and evil? Well, acts, um, moral good and moral evil and actions lies because acts proceed from free will. So it's the engagement of the will with something that makes it morally good or morally bad. So if, you just, if just something happens to you that is physically bad, well, that isn't a moral question. It's only a moral question when the, the will engages, the free will engages. The passions, which is what St. Thomas would analyze more frequently, um, 
So tendencies aren't moral per se. So quoting the catechism, in themselves passions are neither good nor evil. They are morally qualified only to the extent that they effectively engage reason and will. So that, you know, my passions aren't moral at all if my will and reason aren't engaging with them. And so they can only be good or evil um, in that light. So Melina makes the point, a disposition, i.e. in this context, the homosexual orientation, can be assigned a moral quality analogical insofar as it favours a certain orientation. So we're going to say it's objectively disordered, objectively evil. That's by analogy, not strictly speaking. Distinction makes sense. So you can't say someone's evil just because there's an orientation in them to something that is evil. Okay, the last kind of package of this um, part of the analysis inclinations to sin and unnatural inclinations. Um, I suppose I just want to emphasize the point here that there are many inclinations in us, as I say here, that are disordered. So concupiscence means that there is, just in general within me, a disorder in my passions, in general within me, an inclination to sin. So if we're going to understand what's meant by something inherently disordered, intrinsically disordered, that has to be our broader context. So this is just what we're looking at today, one particular manifestation of that. So I say the inclination to gluttony, the inclination to promiscuity, the inclination perhaps to being an alcoholic, a workaholic. Um, there are many things within us that we can be inclined towards that are an inclination to something that is wrong. And my inclination isn't moral until my reason and will engage with it. So I can only say it's an evil inclination analogically. Um, but actually we can say this of many things. So again, the risk of labelling and condemning a group of people for an inclination, whereas actually there are many inclinations out there and we're not labelling those people slapping a, a condemnation on them as a category of people. So this said, the homosexual inclination is an example of an inclination to something that's called unnatural in the tradition. Then quote St. Thomas, a sexual act is unnatural when its defect lies in the nature of the act per se rather than from a deforming context. So I spent a fair bit of yesterday going through old manuals. So this word unnatural gets bandied about quite a lot in the tradition. I was trying to find a nice tidy definition of it, um, and I didn't. Um, so there might be one out there, but the fact I was able to read the number of manuals that I did, um, and none of them actually defined this term, in one sense, that its meaning, you might say in the tradition, isn't that specific. 
um, and maybe in a certain context they felt they knew exactly what they were saying, so you, they didn't feel a need to define it. Um, but um, Jones, don't know how many of you have old manuals, I think it's good to have at least one old manual on your shelf as a pastor, because they will refer you to things in details that a lot of modern books don't, even though the packaging of the old manuals is very legalistic and unattractive. Anyway, so Jones' manual, he refers to natural sins against chastity. So fornication, which is when you have sex either between two unmarried people, um, yeah, so sex between two unmarried people, fornication. Adultery, one of the people is married, and maybe one isn't, but one of them is married, makes it adultery. Rape, abduction, incest, sacrilege. These are all described as natural sins against chastity. So they are sins, but they don't change the nature of the act that the evil is from deformity of, of the context. Which we might notice does seem to be a very physical description of what's going on there. Because we've spent a fair bit of time in this course talking about how the act is personal. And so it would therefore seem that what persons are involved should affect the nature of the act. What specifically, what do you mean by sacrilege? Um, I, was looking for I was looking for a definitive example of this, uh, and I'm not entirely sure, but sex with a nun, okay. you, you've broken the vow as well as mm -hmm. um, engaging in just what's unchaste. And then I guess that, that gross example we had in the media recently of, of sex on an altar and whatever where it okay. is. Yeah. So you might, less common category, which is why it's at the end of the list. Then. Mm -hmm. um, okay, what are unnatural sins against chastity? Well, masturbation, bestiality, sodomy, and contraception. So in each of those, the sexual faculty is used in a way that even at kind of a base physical level, it's failing to achieve its function. So it's not just that it is unchaste, but it is unnatural. And I note there, there's a distinction in the manuals between perfect sodomy and imperfect sodomy. So, you know, you will get in confession, um, a man will engage in a sodomous act with his wife. Um, that is immoral. Um, but it's not perfect sodomy in that it's not between two men. Um, okay, before turning the page, if we can just kind of comments, reflections, this whole thing about objective disorder, intrinsically disordered, natural, unnatural, inclinations, acts. Comments? Have you, by chance, the document that talks about deep-seated tendencies, have you read that in 
I'm assuming Latin is what it was originally in. I'm not. Okay, I haven't either. I should look that up because I'm wondering what the term is. I read it in Spanish, the Spanish translation, just to see what the translation would be. And the term it used seemed to me very problematic because it translated it as natural homosexual tendencies. Not deep-seated, but natural. Yeah, where it says deep-seated mm. in Spanish, it says natural. Tendencias homosexuales naturales. And I don't know what the word natural in Spanish would imply. That that might have a different packaging there. I don't know if you and Brian have any... I would say... I mean, I don't know what Brian would think. I would... The impression I got reading it in that sense is that it seems to be suggesting more like it's not something that's chosen, it's just there, it's like it's a part of you, it's something that occurs by itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it does, that's not to say it couldn't still be disordered, like gluttony, for instance, would be something that's not chosen, it's just a natural inclination, if you will, in the sense that it's part of your nature. But I was just saying, like, if, especially if the original Latin used that term, that could be problematic when you're getting into, like, the Thomistic distinction between natural versus unnatural. All the commentary I've read on the English in it um, would suggest to me that the Spanish you're referring to is a poor translation rather than the English. Um, and that the the debate that came out after the document was published. I was in Rome at the time. There's a whole build-up to it coming out and discussion, debate, what was it, what was it gonna say? How is it gonna phrase that? Um, would it expel half the Vatican because... Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's no Latin text on the website. The Italian does say profondamente radicate, so deeply rooted. Right. And yeah, I'm sure there is a, a Latin text certainly coming out at that time. Um, I guess it's wanting to make the distinction that it's not a blanket exclusion of anyone with any manifestation of this at any time. Um, mm-hmm. But it has shifted. When I was in seminary, there was talk that, well, being homosexual, being heterosexual are just equally the same, and as long as you're going to be celibate, that's Mm -hmm. fine. And this is indicating, actually, no, they're not equal categories. There is an issue here, and sometimes that issue is deep-seated enough. What is the the Spanish text no longer uses that word natural? Okay. Really? Yeah, it says. Mm-hmm. The natural appears once in a different context than the other expressions are in profundamente arraigadas. Where did you find natural? It's talking about against natural law. That's the expression. Because I have to look back on that because I'm sure I saw that as natural unless it's a, an older translation maybe. Right, right.
think I know that position you were talking about. That was advocated by Timothy Radcliffe, and mm -hmm. they kind of famously wrote. Um, to be honest, back in my day, it was such a common position, I wouldn't have put a name to it. Mm -hmm. um, it was almost the default position. Um, just as long as you're celibate, that's okay. I suppose one set of examples would be anything with a vice. So in terms of virtue development and repetition, you can do something objectively evil once, but if you do it repeatedly, you become inclined to it. So even though it might be contrary to your nature to be gluttonous, you know, that it, it deforms your nature to be gluttonous, you eat a gluttonous quantity multiple occasions and you become inclined to it. You become inclined to have always, you know, the, the measure you give yourself in the refectoria, by repetition you just habitually measure yourself a big thing of, of that, even though that's not what you need. Um, in, in that repeated habit becomes natural? Yes, so th that would be both in Aristotle and in St. Thomas, that your passions change and become habituated that it, that just looks right to you your will directs you to that measure your passions direct you to that measure and the fuddling the clouding of your intellect can be such that you even no longer think properly would that be like an addiction an addiction to use Aristotle's terminology would be incontinent where you are resisting so you know it's wrong, but you do it anyway. Yeah, so my intellect is telling me I shouldn't have two plates of the lasagna. Um, but it's just I've been having two plates of lasagna every time for a long time now. And just my passions, I just have to have the two plates. Um, and because there's a battle going on there, that's kind of what we would tend to refer to as an addiction. Whereas, um, if your intellect also measures and chooses, I'm quite happy to be 16 stone. I don't know, what's that in American units? Uh, I'm happy to be big. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the, um, yeah, so you know, here in America, you have shops big and tall, designed for people that have chosen that as a lifestyle. Um, so that I consciously choose, I'm going to be that size, I'm going to have to buy a car that has those extra big seats, I'm going, you know, that there's a whole lifestyle choice that I intellectually choose because I want the big eating that goes with that. And I become inclined to it. So that in terms of virtue analysis, vice analysis, 
whether it's Aristotle, whether it's St. Thomas, this has had a lot of reflection over the years. The application to it in terms of same-sex orientation hasn't had as much reflection. So on the bibliography, I indicate to you an article by Nicanor Ostriaco, who is a very bright uh, Dominican. Um, and his analysis basically says that is what the homosexual orientation can be. Um, and you could say even in youth, in childhood, a child can be trained towards something by a parent that isn't good for them from the origin. Why couldn't that also include various things in your sexuality? We're getting ahead of ourselves to the question of cause, which is kind of the next thing I want us to reflect on. Um, but the distinction between act, orientation, natural, unnatural, I'm guessing we all picked up the kind of slight discomfort with the word unnatural. So I think the tradition uses that word for very clear reasons. It is actually saying something. But if we're going to use that, that word in our modern context, I think the tradition needs to articulate it a bit more clearly and precisely. And I guess in some church documents, there is, as is often the case, a kind of compromise going on so that the, the editors can agree that the homosexual orientation or whatever is a problem for these reasons. There might be a number of more speculative reasons that they don't put in there, but that kind of as a package might make more sense. But a church document rarely wants to put speculation in there. It wants to hold on to what's solid doctrine. Okay, one thing I've not used yet is the phrase lifestyle choice. Yes. Um, interestingly, I don't think the church documents seem to reflect much on it, but so within the, the homosexual community, the gay community, whatever label we're going to slap on it, um, there's uh, sometimes a disagreement within the community. Is this what I am? I was born this way. How dare you criticize me for it? Or there's another kind of grouping that will say, no, this is just what I choose. I want this. This is my lifestyle choice. So someone I went to university with that we all thought was straight um, at a certain stage said he was making this lifestyle choice. And he, that's how he said it. It's not that I feel in, inclined. This is just how I choose to live. I like this package of how to live. Which would suggest orientation isn't the only thing going on here. That you might, because in many ways, well, so was it Molina's article that makes the point that, that our modern society in many ways is homosexual and how it views sex. 
the gender has been taken out of it, complementarity has been taken out of it, orientation to children has been taken out of it. In many ways, the, the homosexual sex is kind of the model of modern sex. I, as a young man, I don't want the commitment of children, I don't want the commitment of a relationship. Actually, homosexual sex ticks all of those boxes. So the, the quote I started these notes from the Catechism is talking about an orientation, but that isn't the only way of looking at this package of issues. There is a lifestyle choice thing. I think within the church, the orientation question has tended to predominate because there are those who say, God made me this way, and you can't really s and, and justify their behavior accordingly. Whereas if it is just a lifestyle choice, well then the church can say, well, you shouldn't choose it. Um, so, but that is one set of expression out there. Any additional comments, observations? I mean, yeah. Uh, so what would be the right terminology for suffering and life choice? Um, I don't think there is a right terminology. I think that is, strictly speaking, right. I think it's just, who are you talking to when you're using that word? So in terms of things like pastoral sensitivity, um, words that sound condemning, words that sound like you're saying, you're weird, you know? Um, So I'm afraid that's as much of an answer as I've got to that. Okay, let's move on. Page four of my notes. Um, now you could well say um, to look at the question of the cause of the homosexual orientation in half a page is an injustice. But um, we're covering things, we're trying to cover a loss in just two lectures. So what is the cause? If we're focusing in our context, the packaging, the orientation, well, what is the cause of that orientation? Why is it that some people have this orientation, some deep-seated, some transitory? Some, why is it there at all? Well, the Catechism says its psychological genesis remains largely unexplained. So that the Catechism kind of chooses to not base its analysis on a particular explanation. And then notice what I list what I've called four possible causes. First, a genetics. And I say there's no scientific evidence of this. Uh, it is something frequently said. Um, but I say, however, many human abnormalities, to use maybe an even more offensive term, have genetic causes. So that there's therefore no logical reason why the homosexual condition might not have a genetic origin. That, you know, as a theologian, I shouldn't be freaked out at the thought that there's a problem and it's got a genetic cause. Well, actually, there are lots of 
problems that epigenetic causes. So there isn't scientific evidence of it, but that's one possibility. B and Grabowski referred to this. Um, so some years ago now, but in my lifetime, what seemed relatively recent, studies showing exposure to hormonal imbalance while in the womb seems to then result in a greater likelihood of the orientation in the adult that then comes along in maturing later. And again, you know, there are many things in the development in the womb where things don't quite go right. Um, so theologically, that's not problematic, but that is a possibility. See, psychological upbringing. Now, this has had probably some of the more aggressive argumentation about it. So I say, in particular, a failure to effectively, in your affections, identify with members of your own gender. So, in a psychologically healthy man, I should look at another man and feel, this is the same as me rather than this is different from me, this I don't feel I belong here kind of thing. So the two ways that might happen, um, for example, the failure to adequately bond with your father. And I speculate, might this explain young men who feel attracted to older men? So within the gay community, that is one of the patterns where you will have young men who have a predominant attraction not to men, but to older men. Um, another possibility, failure to bond with other children of your own gender. So some speculation in this regard would point to sport, so boys who are useless at sport and therefore can't be part of the club uh, and identify with other boys that way, does that cause a failure to bond with your own gender? Um, and might that explain men who feel consistently attracted to young men? So that age bracket when I fail to fit in, I feel an attraction for that because that's when I never kind of fitted in and I want to get in a sexual union a, a sense of being accepted. Some of the books on the bibliography that talk about um, the psychology of some of these things, and yes, this is speculative, so some of those books on that bibliography kind of argue different points, because they're from psychologists, and as with a lot of psychology, you get five opinions with every two psychologists. Um, but there is various, there are certainly a lot of studies that would say psychological upbringing is at least one of the possible causes. If I was going to put my money on it, I would put it on what I've listed as D, a combination of all of the above. I know single one of the above explains all individuals. 
might, for example, someone whose same-sex attraction is caused predominantly by psychological upbringing be more likely to be helped by therapy than someone whose causes were physical. Um, a mixture of different causes is another way of looking at all of it. Not it's always genetic or it's always upbringing. Because there are lots of, certainly almost any one of the genetic or hormonal imbalance things, you'll find exceptions to the rule, which suggests it might make it likely but not automatic. Linked with this is the question of curing homosexuality. So a deeply, um, in terms of the sexual, um, secular my world's mindset in this regard, deeply controversial. I say the fact that the homosexual inclination is transitory in some people, i.e. it's there for a while and then it goes, um, or it might only manifest in later life, but it wasn't present in earlier life, or it's mixed in some people, meaning that they're attracted both to men, both to women, varying in time, might support the notion that it's best seen as a psychological condition that can be treated. However, many psychological conditions cannot be cured, even if they can be partially healed. Um, so, quoting there with the footnote, success rates uh, are variously estimated at between 30% or 60%. And the effectiveness rate is similar to those other addictive or chronic disorders such as depression, substance abuse, or smoking. And I note, as a matter of doctrine, the coherence of the Catholic position on same-sex attraction does not rely on the ability of it to be cured, that there are simply many conditions that can't be cured. So I think if you were going to say, is there a Catholic position, well, let's see if there is some help that therapy can give. Um, but we're not committed to thinking, oh, if you have this orientation, you must have therapy and it will achieve this result. Because actually there are all kinds of things in us that therapy for some people helps and for some people it doesn't. Um, or it helps to a certain amount, but not curing it. Um, so if you're bipolar, then you can have help, but that's a condition that will be with you for life. Someone who's bipolar can manage in life, live a, a normal life, but they have a condition that they need to be continually monitoring and aware of. Um, and again, that's a condition that can be very serious in some people and only a little in some people. Care. They need to know what's happening in their lives. 
Voice Cardio is pointing to the body of it at stake. Are these uh, the issues that are in the mind of the psychologist or the ignoring those stages of human development in terms of no, I, th I, th I think a lot of them would focus on certain stages as being pivotal. And so if a certain condition isn't present at a certain stage, that's when something is lacking and then the rest of that person's life, they're somehow yearning to fill that lack and the same such attraction is somehow perceived as what's going to fill that lack. That, you know, someone's father was never around when they were at a certain developmental stage and so they're yearning for a male figure. But that would be only one particular model. Um. How about issues like, I guess we'll put those in psychology, issues like <coughs> um, we have these uh, civil leaders, uh, politicians who, in most of their rhetoric, in most of our organizations, they would, they would have a category where they would say, okay, the United States is Americans, Latino, whatever, and then they include the LGBT in that category of national identity to make LGBT look like it's a certain kind of an identity. That kind of rhetoric in society, would that include in psychological kind of societal affirmations and influence. I'm not sure if anyone else has anything to... I don't know if it's, if I would say it so much that in terms of politicians, I think it's just Western culture has completely accepted and normalized that agenda. So like in the eyes of many politicians and just a lot of people in general, there there really is no difference between sexual orientation and race, you know, it's just as intrinsic a part of who you are as what your race is. That's what I would say. Supreme Court even said the same thing over the summer, adding sexual orientation and gender identity to race discrimination acts from the 60s. Yeah, right. And you might in reverse say, what, what groups all those together? They're all people that have felt excluded. So they, they're, bond, they're ganging together because they all, what do they have in common? The fact they've all felt left out. But they don't really have much more in common than that when they get, in a sense, truly in control. And that's in part why some of these alliances, the LBGTQI plus whatever, that some of the f factional arguing, arguing within that is getting quite strong now because they're so powerful, therefore in a sense they can afford to argue among themselves. So I think I flagged up very long with those gender issues. Um, 
the, the conflict between les some lesbian groups and some um, trans men. So a man who changes himself to be a woman and then complains that a lesbian doesn't find him attractive. Um, there is attraction to something bodily. Well, that's the very thing that gender ideology is saying isn't what defines me. So that the more that those groups that are currently bonded together because they're the people that have felt excluded, the more they become in power, that bonding politically is not going to hold. But there is um, at least one lesson for us to learn from that is that we have allowed such people to feel excluded. And often in the name of Christianity, our defense of traditional sexuality has been expressed in a way that has marginalized, demonized certain people of our homosexual inclination. And why traditionally have societies that there is a reason why societies have frequently wanted to not have the manifestation of homosexual practice in their culture because it does destabilize normal family life. So if we've been talking about how the state needs to support marriage in order for there to be children, unions that are just completely outside of that risk destabilizing the whole package. Okay, before we break, let's have a, a little section here on discrimination. Um, which we've kind of touched on already in a different way. So, unjust discrimination, just discrimination. Unjust discrimination. The Catechism says every sign of unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided. But then the Church also says things that are a form of just discrimination. So literally just to, the word discriminate, literally it means to recognize a distinction, to perceive a difference in or between things. So this word that gets bandied about, oh, you're discriminating. Well, yes, I'm recognizing differences. Um, unjust discrimination is when we distinguish, separate unfairly or infer things that shouldn't be inferred. Okay, so what does the church say would actually be just discrimination? It says homosexual persons should not be allowed to adopt children, should be restricted from certain aspects of youth work, should not be admitted to priestly formation if their condition is deep-seated, if a transitory condition has not been overcome for at least three years. So it's a very specific measure that's been put there on how deep seats it is being defined. And why? Because their condition lacks effective maturity and gravely hinders them from relating correctly to men and women. One must in no way overlook the negative consequences that can derive from the ordination of persons with deep-seated homosexual tendencies. So I'm guessing 
we've all seen parishes where there is a fairly flamboyantly queer priest who just does not have the capacity to engage with the men of the parish. Um, that there is a deep-seated manifestation of this that hinders the ability to effectively engage with people. Um, just discrimination continued. Um, shouldn't be given recognition in same-sex marriage. Shouldn't be given legal recognition in de facto unions. So those two categories, legal recognition, we're gonna come back to on Wednesday. Um, I think that's a thing worthy of a particular focus. Um, and then lastly, quoting from the 1986 letter from the CDF, it is deplorable that homosexual persons have been and are the object of violent malice in speech or in action. The intrinsic dignity of each person must be respected in word, in action, and in law. Now, we've got five minutes before we break. Um, so, um, did you have your hand or are you stretching? Uh, James, would you mind reading footnote 18 for us? So this is about the adoption of children. As experienced by Sean, the absence of sexual complementarity in New Zealand creates obstacles in the normal development of children who would be placed in the care of such persons. They would be deprived of the experience of either fatherhood or motherhood, allowing children to be adopted by persons living in such unions would actually mean doing violence to these children in the sense that their condition of dependence would be used to place them in an environment that is not conducive to their full human development. This is gravely immoral and in open contradiction to the principle recognized also in the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child that the best interests of the child as the weaker and more vulnerable party are to be the paramount consideration in every case. Any observations on that? So we have lots of statistical analysis at this moment in history on the problems that, particularly in young teenage boys, when they haven't had a father figure at home. When you have, particularly in some of our inner cities, whole neighborhoods where there are very few father figures and the, men are the boys are growing up into men without father figures around. So we have the irony of being able to see the psychological statistics of how bad those consequences are, and yet at the same time, campaigners saying, oh no, it's utterly normal to have children adopted by couples where there isn't gonna be that sexual complementarity, the experience of both fatherhood and motherhood. Comments, observations.
Okay, footnote 19. So this is about um, homosexual persons not being allowed to do certain aspects that are unspecified of youth work. And the footnote 19 says, to avoid exposing young people to erroneous ideas about sexuality and marriage that would deprive them of their necessary defenses and contribute to the spread of the phenomenon. And you might speculate that there were other concerns or fears behind that, but the church document is, in a sense, pointing towards more solid grounds for criteria. There does seem to be a phenomenon whereby the type of adults that get attracted to youth work are often people that had a fairly tragic youth experience themselves. Um, and that's part of what drives them. They want better to help teenagers. But that often means they're not necessarily the, most, the best rounded people to put in those roles. Um, and this would be, in a sense, just one manifestation of a, a concern that way. To them be role models to young people, to be the ones handing them out condoms and whatever else, um, because that's the package of life they consider normative. Okay, so what have we looked at this morning? This morning we have looked at some introductory thoughts about what the whole phenomenon as an orientation is, about labels and terminology, not wanting to buy into the gay or homosexual labels, a person with the same sex attraction, the difference between an inclination to something that's disordered and something that is disordered, um, and that there are many disordered inclinations in us. Um, and some speculation about questions of cause. Um, so what are we going to do on Wednesday? Well, the reading material for Wednesday is from the Handbook for Courage, which is an organisation that is here in the Columbus Diocese. don't know how, where it is in your other diocese. Um, so if you could read that, be ready to come with some observations for discussion. Got a brief page on six about the course chastity in that regard. And then I've got a couple pages on the question of legal recognition for same-sex unions. Um, that's what we'll look at on Wednesday.